Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Houston, we have a problem. That was one of the first sort of phrases that I remember uh, growing up with that sort of became a cultural moment, that became sort of a cultural icon. And so if you are above a certain age, you automatically remember when somebody says, Houston, we have a problem. You are taken to that moment in the movie Apollo 13. The problem is, is that as I am aging, those movies that are the cultural touchstones for me are not the cultural touchstones for younger people. In fact, twice in the past month, once as recently as Friday evening, I made a reference to the movie Tommy Boy, the seminal uh, classic piece of highbrow cinema, Tommy Boy. The, the excellent Oscar-worthy performance of Tommy Boy, only to have um, some Gen Z kid look at me like they have no idea what's going on because they've never seen Tommy Boy. This is a problem. Much like all the other problems and struggles that we face in life, whether it's arguing with your spouse or wishing you had a spouse to argue with, we struggle. Maybe it's navigating Pinellas County School Choice Program. It's a problem. Maybe it's sitting on your couch last night at 8.30 and wondering what is that loud and rumbling noise only to remember that there was a wrestling event at the TROP, and that is the loud noise that was bothering you. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Whatever it is, we all have particular problems, particular things that we are carrying. And I kind of this week figured out what the root of all of our problems is. I I kind of think I've got a silver bullet to all of this. Church, our problem You may want to, if you're a note taker, you may want to write this down. Our problem is sin. That's, that's our problem. Pretty shocking. I know, I know. But joking aside, I think that one of the things that, that makes us struggle the most in our faith is our sin. Now, that may sound like some sort of vague truism that, you know, oh yeah, of course the pastor says sin is bad. Like, yes, I get that. But I'm just not talking about the heat of the moment, you know, somebody with California tags in a pickup truck runs a light and cuts you off and, you know, you're, you say some things and salute them. I'm not talking about the way that the sin sort of sneaks up on us or the reactions that we have to our families or our workplaces that, that make us have bad reactions. No, what I'm talking about is those moments and choices that we make as Christians where we know what is right, we know what is wrong. We look at the decision and go, yeah, I'm going to do the wrong one. I'm going to do the wrong thing. Those moments when we willfully choose to do something that we know is wrong. And as Christians, this oftentimes messes with our brain. We don't quite know what to do with that. This morning, we're going to be looking at John uh, chapter 14, the second half specifically. And as we do, Jesus is going to repeat one phrase three times in this passage, and it's relevant to this, this struggle that we have. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, as Christians, that's oftentimes hard for us to hear because we can look at our lives. If we evaluate our lives, we kind of look at them and go, 
Well, I don't always keep his commandments, but I want to love him. How, how do I reconcile this? How do I figure this all out? Because when we read something like that, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments as Christians, that often comes off to us as discouraging. If we sort of look back at our lives and what we've done, we lose heart. And so what our mind does is it goes to some sort of sin management solution, some sort of path that if I just try harder, if I just change my circumstance, if I just maybe give myself some sort of self-inflicted punishment, then I will stop. I just need to muster up enough willpower and then I'll get this sin problem fixed if I just try harder. It's almost like we treat sin like carbohydrates. It's January, some people are doing Whole30, some people are changing their diets for the year, and we just, I'm just going to not eat any sweets anymore, and we muster up that strength. But the problem is, as Christians, the resources and tools that we have to fight sin in our life are not physical or even intuitive. The way that we see real change happen in our lives grows out of supernatural trust and reliance on the God who we love. Change happens in our lives when we see the unending, never failing, never giving up kind of love that Jesus shows us. Change happens when the Holy Spirit shapes our hearts and our desires and reorders them around our place as a child of God. We can't beat sin with worldly tactics. We have to use the spiritual arsenal for a spiritual battle. And that's what, that's what Jesus is going to lay out to his disciples as we read John 14. So if you are able, I'd invite you to stand as I read John 14. I'm going to be reading verses 15 on down to the end of the chapter. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet in a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will talk, I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, 
Let us go from here. City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So as I mentioned, Jesus begins this portion uh, that we are studying today, uh, the night before his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion with that pithy and punchy statement, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And while that phrase might frustrate us, we need to make sure that we keep it in order because oftentimes our gut instinct is to flip that around. Our gut instinct is to say, if I keep his commandments, then I love him. And that's entirely different. If we say, if I keep his commandments, then I love him, we're putting the obey part first and then the love. But, but that's not the way that it goes around. It's not a matter of rule keeping to create our love for God. Our love for Jesus is what motivates our obedience. In fact, this is oftentimes what Jesus criticized the Pharisees about again and again through the Gospels. The Pharisees wanted to do the right thing. The Pharisees were really good rule keepers. They were the kids in class who would totally narc you out to the teacher. You know, you know, look at him. He's doing the wrong thing. I mean, they were rule keepers, rule keepers. They didn't just tithe their income. They tithed, Jesus said, out of, the, out of their herb garden, out of the window box that they grow a little bit of basil to put in the sauce for. They would tithe out of that. They did all the right things externally. But again and again, Jesus pointed out how they lacked love, how they, how they didn't truly love And so much of what passes as Christianity looks like this. It looks like just rote rule keeping, just rote following of a certain set of standards, whether those are doing the right thing morally or voting the right way politically or standing for the right causes. So many people reduce Christianity to a set of rules. But Jesus is clear and stark. This statement turns that on its head. It's love that comes first. Our obedience has to be driven by our love or else it is out of order. But that out of order is not the natural way of things. This has to be done supernaturally. And Jesus understands that, which is why immediately upon giving them this commandment, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He tells them that this is going to be supernaturally done because he is going to ask the father for supernatural help for them. He is going to send another helper. Now, you may have noticed on the screen behind me that helper there was capitalized. Maybe you have a a different version of the Bible. Um, Your version might say advocate there, or it might say comforter. Uh, And the reason for the diversity in all of this translation is that Jesus, or John uses, well, Jesus quoting, John quoting Jesus, uses a unique word here that isn't used uh, very often in Greek literature, and it's not used very often in the rest of the Bible. And this word means to walk alongside somebody. So you can see how somebody walking alongside you might be a comfort to you, right? If you were going through a tragedy, somebody walking alongside you is your comforter. If you are uh, going to court and somebody is walking alongside you, they're probably your lawyer, you know, they're your paid, very expensive court friend. Um, and so you can see how that would be an advocate. You can see, you can see how this idea of walking alongside again and again, it has these different ideas depending on where you're going. But in this context, in the, in the idea that Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to live a different sort of life. He is the one that empowers our obedience motivated by love. Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to be with us forever 
a unique gift given by Jesus and from the Father to those who trust him. So the internal power for our lives to be changed doesn't come from us. It doesn't come naturally. It's supernatural and born of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It's his spirit that stirs up that love that leads to obedience. It's it's his spirit that teaches us what it means to love. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand and accept what God says as truth. And so the first tool in our toolbox, if we're if we're struggling with this idea of why do I keep on sinning and why does it that mean that I might not love Jesus like I thought I do? The first toolbox isn't a set of tips. It's not three quick things to stop sinning. Rather, it's the God of the universe who has taken up residence in your souls. When Jesus says that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, what he's doing is picking up a theme from the the Old Testament and from the rest of the book of John. The book of John begins in uh, verse 14 of the first chapter, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. John uses this word dwell over and over, and it's the word that the Old Testament used for tabernacle. He set his tent up in the middle of our place. Uh, Eugene Peterson says that God moved into the neighborhood, and that That's what he says that not only has Jesus come and lived among us, but now the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. He is the presence of God in our very souls. And so if we want to see change, we need to start asking ourselves at the level of our heart first, how am I listening to the Holy Spirit? We need him to reorder our desires so that love motivates obedience. But Jesus knows this is hard. He knows that we don't get this intuitively because so many things, everything else in our life operates on this sort of merit system, this sort of quid pro quo. And so this supernatural idea that we are changed from the inside out is something that's foreign to the disciples. And you add to that, as we talked about last week, this is a wild night. At the same meal, a few breaths before, Jesus said, Jesus has told them, hey, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. And, and Peter, you're going to deny me. And by the way, I'm going to die. So that's how tonight's going to go. That's what we have on the agenda for this evening. Uh, but don't be afraid. He keeps telling them, don't be afraid, because they probably were afraid with good reason. And so Jesus says, listen, don't be afraid. I'm not going to abandon you, and I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And John is, is looking back and is doing the same thing that he did with Tabernacle. He's looking back on what Jesus taught throughout his ministry. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and then tells them, you are of your father, the devil, sick burn, um, because of their rule keeping. But Jesus re- repeatedly said to those who followed him that they are the sons and daughters of God. And adoption is this this metaphor that runs throughout the New Testament. And it's kind of funny that like a hundred years ago, like stories of orphans were like all the rage in popular culture. You know, I mean, you can't, you can't pick up a Dickens novel and not find an orphan. They're all over the place. But, but we don't really have like orphan stories anymore. I guess they kind of redid Annie a few years back, but I didn't see it. I don't know if it was any good. But when we think of orphans, what I want you to think of is the classic picture of somebody adopting a pet from a shelter, 
right? So what happens when somebody adopts a pet from a shelter? They go in and, you know, they pass the first cage and the first dog is like super mangy and they're like, no, no, you know? And then the next dog is like snarling and growling at them and it's like, no, no, no. And then there's this like sweet doe-eyed dog in the third cage, you know, and he kind of is giving them literal, giving the people literal puppy dog eyes and they say, oh, that's the one. That's the one that we're going to take home. And then the, the person running the shelter goes, well, I'm really glad you did because this was going to be his last day here and we're not a no-kill shelter. And, and like everybody goes home and everybody's like, you know, super happy and lives happily ever after. That's, that's in our mind adoption. But, th- but that, that idea that orphans have to prove themselves. You have to be the cutest puppy to get adopted. You can't be the mangy one. You can't be the snarling one. You can't be the growling one. You can't have the, all these things wrong with you or else you'll get passed over. If you have defects, no one's going to choose you. And what Jesus is saying is that his world works differently. This world that is his works differently. We don't have to prove our worth like an orphan. We've already been picked. We've already been chosen. Jesus has already said, that one's mine, defects and all, because we are adopted because of his work and his actions, not our own. And Jesus unfolds this point there in the second sort of paragraph of our text. Because this adoption and our union with him creates all sorts of new things in our lives. They're about to see him crucified, but then they're also going to get to see him resurrected. And he says, because I live you are going to live because you are going to be united with me. And that same sort of unity that I have with the Father is the same sort of unity that you and I are going to have together. When the Bible talks about this, the, the word that it reaches for is mystery, is mystic, because we are united to Christ and united with him in a mystical way. It's, it's not dissimilar from the way that we often talk about communion, because this is bread and wine that we have, yes, bought at a store. And yet, because of our faith, God says that he is mystically and mysteriously present with us at communion so that we are spiritually feeding on him. In that same way that those two things go together, we are united with Christ. And you're going to know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in, and I in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. We as God's people experience this mysterious and holy union with Jesus, and through him the Father, when we put our trust in him. But by the way, because we have that mystical union, that's the reason why we are called to love one another. How can you be hateful to someone who is united to Christ? You shouldn't be. That doesn't make sense. We do it. We, we are not who we are always called to be. But that is a part of who God calls us to be and how he unites us together as one family. And so when it comes to this table, Jesus is the bread of life that nourishes our souls. In the same way, the Holy Spirit who lives in us creates mystical union that changes our heart from inside 
that leads to our actions. We begin to understand more and more that we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to have pick-me energy like the dog at the pound, but rather we have already been chosen. We are freely the sons and daughters of God, not orphans who have to prove their worth. But Jesus isn't with us in the same way that he was with his disciples though, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. They're sitting around the table with him, and none of us have sat around a table with Jesus. At least none of you have told me that story. If you did, um, let's talk, um, I think. Uh, but he's not even going to be with his disciples in the same way for much longer. And that's not a bad thing. Jesus says, listen, you should actually be rejoicing that I am returning to my father's side because of our union, because the way that you and I are united to Christ, we are seated with him in heavenly places where he is, is where we are as well. That's how secure our place is in Christ. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter one that I just quoted, that we are seated with him in heavenly places because of how strong we are connected through our union with Christ. Our connection and fellowship with Jesus is objective and real, and it's not affected by how our week has gone. It's secured on the base of Jesus' works and not our own, so that even when we willingly choose to sin, as Christians, it does not change our standing with God, which is hard for us because if someone wrongs us, we are offended and, and we are upset when someone hurts us. And if we find, find out that they willfully chose to hurt us, we're done, right? We, we cut those people out of our lives oftentimes. And yet the love of God for us because of the work of Jesus is love that says, I knew before you did it that you were going to willfully choose to betray me, that you were going to deny me. I knew before you did it that you were going to commit cosmic treason in your actions against me, that you were going to go off and worship silly other idols. I knew before, and yet I still loved you. Yet I still died for you. Yet I still gave my life for you. And the Father sees us as righteous because of our union with Christ. The Father sees you as holy and blameless because of your union with Christ. And the idea that that, that, that is true should give us a feeling of peace, which is exactly what Jesus says. He has made peace between us and God, shalom. Not sort of cheap peace, not just keeping the peace and everybody's going to be okay and we're just not going to talk about this thing or that thing. No, no, no. This is not the sort of cheap throwaway phrase like when, like when you sneeze, you know, and somebody says, God bless you. Like, like no, we, we just say that instinctively. Like nobody is actually, you know, putting a benediction upon you. Oh, may you be blessed for your sneezing. Like that, no, it's just a phrase that we see and the phrase that people just say in the same way, I'm, you know, I'm a child of the nineties, right? Well, I was growing up in the nineties. We said peace a lot and we had no sort of, you know, we weren't really saying just the slang for see you later, but God is offering us something more. 
something more lasting. God accepts us through our union with Christ and our hearts can be untroubled because of what Jesus has done. Even on your worst day, your peace with God is not affected in the slightest by the depth of your sin because Jesus is in our place and we are with him through his union. And that's counterintuitive. He tells his disciples, my death is going to be a good thing. What? Why did it have to go down like that? Because the way that Jesus made peace for us is through his death. The way that Jesus makes peace is through his body, which was broken, and his blood, which is shed. Because of the cross, we are reconciled to God and to one another. We're mysteriously bound together as a new family, mystically at peace with God because of our faith of Jesus and his work. And so, beloved, when we really start to believe that, that our worst day doesn't change the peace, love, and acceptance that we have for Jesus, it begins to change us at the level of our desires. And the Holy Spirit is the one who reminds us of those truths, reminds us, calls to our mind. He reminds us of the objective truth of God's love for us that isn't subjective like so much of our love for one another. It isn't sentimental like the way that a Hallmark movie portrays love. It is objective. And we don't have to prove ourselves or clean ourselves up to be accepted and adopted because Jesus, our big brother, has already done that for us. Jesus did all the work. And God is present in weakness and all our mistakes because of what Jesus has already done for us. And our calling then, the way that we live our lives, is to begin to live into the identity that has been made for us. And as we do, we'll begin to see Jesus as truer. We'll begin to see him as better, as more beautiful than what our sin promises us. And so we're changed by reflection on the gospel. We're changed by his work in our lives, not by trying to bootstrap our holiness. And so church, let's feast. Church, let's sing and sing loud. Let's hold up the wonder of what Jesus has done for us and that we didn't have to earn and that he has already knowing our sin, reached out and died on our behalf. And so then may we be transformed by that love in a way that makes us look more like him. And looking more like him ends up looking like obedience to his word, but it comes first from love and beholding him. Let's pray.